Hello and a very warm welcome to the State of Our Nation, a podcast by Access Social Care. I'm your host, Carrie Gersteimer, and today we're going to be talking to experts, leaders and change makers about all things adult social care. We will all need social care at some point in our lives and at Access Social Care, our aim is to ensure that people get the support they have a right to. So listen along to find out more about the state of our nation as we discuss the challenges facing millions of people in need of social care across the country. Please join me in welcoming Richard Humphreys to the State of Our Nation podcast. We're extremely fortunate to have Richard here today. For many listeners who work in the sector, Richard will not need an introduction. Richard is a respected social care advisor, national commentator, and now the author of his own book, Ending the Social Care Crisis, A New Road to Reform. Now, with a professional background in local authority social care, Richard has held roles in the Department for Health before moving into the world of think tanks, where he was a senior fellow at the King's Fund until 2021. Much of Richard's work has been based on the long-term funding of care, social care reform, and the integration of health and social care. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing Richard's thoughts in today's podcast. Now, as we fast approach the end of 2022, we thought we would take the opportunity to review the year in social care, reflecting on a particularly tumultuous year in politics and examining the impact domestic policy and economics has had on the escalating crisis in our adult social care system. Now, who better than to take us through this than Richard? Hello, Richard. A very warm welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Very, very pleased to be talking to you. There's so much going on, isn't there? And hopefully I can share some of my experience, my mistakes, as well as uh, other things with you. So where where, where do we start? Where shall we start? So as you can imagine, there's a huge amount to unpack in this episode, but let's start by talking a little about your work and how you came into the world of social care. Can you briefly explain your work in the social care sector and perhaps give an overview of how you started out in your career? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I mean, my my career sort of goes back to the Jurassic era in the history of social care. And I worked out as I was preparing for this to do this interview with you. It's been 45 years since I began my career as a very young, inexperienced trainee social worker, fresh out of university. And I uh, did work in, in a variety of settings in the community, in residential care, in hospitals, eventually rose to the, the great height of being a director of social services. And for a while, I, I ran the local health authority as well, it joint appointment, one of the first in, in England. I was then asked to go on secondment to the Department of Health uh, to head up a new task force to tackle, guess what, delayed transfers of care from hospital. Mm-hmm. That was 2002. Yeah, so Gosh. what goes round comes round, as they say. And then... Um, after about five years in the department, I, I, I uh, took voluntary redundancy and I began to work for the King's Fund as their kind of lead on, on social care. And I stepped back from that a couple of years ago when COVID came. So I'm in a lucky position, really. I mean, First of all, can I say that 
I've had a fabulous career in, in social care and social work. And my experience is a testimony to the opportunities it can offer. And it is still a great job. Thank you for saying that, Richard. Yeah. I, it's so important. It's so important to hear. And I can equally say I love my job as well, passionately. And I'm I'm so grateful for the, the career and the experiences that I'm yeah. having in the yeah. sector. And I think it's important to hear because we so often talk about a system in crisis. And that sort of, in a way, it, it, it negates all of the incredible work yeah. and opportunities that there are for people. It does. It does. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I think it's probably for tu- it's probably tougher for people starting out now than it was for me 45 years ago. Because I come from a med- very modest background. I didn't have, you know, many, many breaks, really. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I was just a working class kid from a council estate in Wolverhampton. Um, and I'm not sure if... For working class kids now that live in council estates in Wolverhampton, whether they would have the same opportunities that I've had. So that's the only note of caution. But I think the key point is that mm-hmm. I'd do it all again. I'd make the same choice. You know, there's, there's some things I'd do differently and I would learn, try to learn from my mistakes. But, um, you know, I'd, I've had a great time in social work and social care. I consider myself very privileged that's brilliant to hear. Yeah. And now I've reached a point in my career where, again, I'm very lucky in that I can choose what I want to do. I've just finished serving as a member of uh, a commission on reimagining care established by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York. That will be reporting on January the 24th and a report worth looking out for, I think. Um, I've I've written the book. I, I contribute to uh, stuff that's going on at the University of Worcester. I gave a lecture last week to some of the undergraduates there. And for me, this is all about sharing my experience with the next generation of social care practitioners and leaders. And I think it's really important to do that. So that that's probably enough about me, Carrie. I think we're very lucky to have that expertise and insight and I'm hoping to pull some of that out today. So thank you for that introduction, Richard. I'm going to zoom us forwards then to the current day. And people, as we know, talk about the sector a a lot and talk about it being there being a social care crisis and talk about the social care system as being close to collapse. I'm really interested to hear why you think we've reached that point and and maybe some reflections on why you think 2022 has been a particularly tough year for those both using social care and working in social care. Well, I mean, it's just one thing after another, isn't it, Carrie? You know, we, we think the worst is over and then something else happens. So we had the years of austerity from 2010 and those massive cuts in local authority spending power, the restrictions on the sort of care that people could get, the pressures on providers. And then we had Brexit and the impact on the workforce of that. And then we had COVID, which was just dreadful, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Let's dig into that a little bit more um, and, and your reflections on on the aftermath of, of COVID-19. At Access Social Care, we are working with unpaid carers, some of whom have not had a break since 2020. And we're hearing that some organisations and individuals really feel as though their contribution 
during the pandemic has been overlooked by the government? Yes. Well, I mean, we we all know that there was no protective ring thrown around care homes. And I think for services in the community, particularly home care, it was even worse. And and as it began to shake out, I mean, it was hospitals, then care homes, and then anything else in that in that order, wasn't it? So so I think um, what COVID did actually was expose years of neglect and a real lack of understanding of social care at the centre um, in government. I mean, I contributed to a couple of papers by the Health Foundation, which looked at the the impact of COVID and the adequacy of the policy response. And my my final piece of work for the King's Fund before I left there was a, a series of interviews with social care leaders about the state of social care. And I think almost without exception, people were incredibly critical about the lack of national uh, leadership in relation to social care. And in fairness, I think the Department of Health and Social Care is, has, has been trying to, to do something about that. But I think we went through a period of some years where mm. social care knowledge and expertise within the department was was kind of, it was just eroded. And then COVID came and that was brutally exposed, as was some of the you know conditions in, in the sector, like poor pay and conditions of, of service, of, of staff, staff moving around from one home to another and so on. And and it almost kind of lifted the lid off off it all, didn't it? We've moved swiftly, haven't we, from from COVID into a social care workforce crisis and um, enormous problems with the recruitment and retention. We work with many social care providers and we're hearing that they're really struggling to staff their services. And, and in some instances are having to hand back contracts. Um, and of course, that all has an impact on carers having to take on more and yes yeah, so i'm just again just just interested to hear your reflections on that richard it, it is i mean it is quite staggering that this year the number of people who were working in social care actually fell and that we've got you know the highest level of vacancies ever ever recorded and this is completely you know the numbers are going completely the wrong way at a time when we think that the numbers requiring social care have gone up, of course, because of long COVID. And- exactly. And a number of people, not just me, have been saying for some time, we need a proper workforce strategy. You know, very you know, serious, independent bodies like the National Audit Office a few years ago did a report on social care workforce and said there needs to be a strategy. Even... Uh, the Health and Social Care Select Committee in Parliament, when it was chaired by Jeremy Hunt, now our Chancellor, said there needs to be a workforce plan. And we still don't have it. And then we had other daft things going on, like that when everybody in care homes were all marched up the hill with mandatory vaccination, everybody had to have the jab. Remember that? Mm. And then, of course, they... Yes, I do, yes. Because when they tried to extend it to the health service, it, it all fell apart and they kind of dropped the requirement altogether. But it was too late, and already we'd lost thousands of staff. So that was an entirely unforced error, really. So we're not helping ourselves, really. And then, of course, no sooner as we start to get things together after COVID, we get the economic crisis, we get Ukraine, we get the impact on inflation, um, and energy prices, and the the startling revelation report the Health Foundation did a few weeks ago, which I didn't think getting got enough 
publicity that it should have, which is that I think it was a one in four care workers are living in poverty. You know, and this is this is this is astonishing, and I mean, you know, the national living wage has has been you know really helpful in lifting up some of the basic rates of pay, but we've still got a long way to go before we can treat care workers properly. There's something very seriously wrong, isn't there, when people are having to visit food banks, when they're conducting such an important role for society. I absolutely agree. That's right, that's right. So I think, I think you know, we've sat on our hands about the workforce crisis. It's been bubbling away and building up. You know, this is not just you know, popped up in the last few, last couple of years. It's been a growing problem. And many people have been saying, look, we need a proper plan to, to deal with this. And and now in many places, as you know, Carrie, I mean, workforce is a bigger problem than money. You can give councils all the money in the world you can, and you can pay providers more, but unless we can really substantially improve the way we treat care workers, which is in large part about paying conditions, but it's not just about that, then we're still going to have a problem, I think. That's it, status and recognition of that. Yeah. Extraordinary work is so important, isn't it? it is. And 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 as long as we're we're sat playing second fiddle to to the NHS, we will continue yeah. to lose workers. Yeah. But you you make an interesting point then, Richard, about the fact that this hasn't been a sudden thing and that it's been growing. Um and I often say that I think that there has been a failure of successive governments yes. around social care to, to fix some of the issues that we're seeing. Now, at the start of his premiership, of course, Boris Johnson promised to fix social care. Yeah. And if we fast forward today, we can see that we've had U-turns on both the national insurance levy and the cap on charging. And we find ourselves in a situation where the county council's network... Yeah are reporting that many local authorities are, are on the brink of, of financial collapse and many are concerned about that central government failure to provide long-term funding and long-term funding solutions. So I'm, I'm curious then, Richard, do you yeah. think that we've ended the year in a better place or a worse place? Um, slightly better in the sense that Chancellor Hunt did did release more money for social care that we weren't expecting. That's a good thing. However, it barely covers the sides of what is required. And um, and Jeremy Hunt, when he was uh, chairing the House of Commons Select Committee, uh, said that social care needed seven billion a year almost immediately. And the amount he's allocated as Chancellor has fallen well short of that. I mean, we we appreciate that. The, the kind of fiscal pressures the government is under now with everything, but even so, I mean, the, so the money was welcome. What is less welcome, I think, is the abandonment of the or other postponement of the funding reforms, the, particularly the the cap and the the more generous means test. But I think I think I'd like to go back a bit further, Carrie, if I may, because Please. I think I think the current crisis in social care has very deep roots. Mm. And it's it's not all the you know it's you can't put it all at the door of the wicked conservatives or or whatever. It actually, in my view, and I talk about this a lot in the book, it goes back to the 1948 welfare state when we had this you know wonderful brave new world of our universal national health service, which was widely acclaimed and 
you know, still has a special place in the country's affections despite its current difficulties. But back in '48, social care wasn't wasn't even thought of because most people didn't live that long to need it, and the assumption was that those that did would either get it in a in an NHS long stay ward, or families would do it. By families, we mean women. That feminist issue. Yeah. The implicit social contract of, of, of the welfare state was that in return for universal health care, free education, family allowances, to put it bluntly, women would stay at home and look after the kids and the old folk. Yeah. You know, that that was it. Well, of course, 74 years on, all of the assumptions behind that are bust. They've gone, you know. Yes, and and we can't expect women to do the bulk of care, which they still do. Actually, unpaid care is you know without without that, the whole thing would would collapse. And it's the sad fact that over eighty percent of carers and paid carers yeah. are women. Yeah. So fascinating. And I just have to say for 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 any listeners who haven't read Richard's book, the the timeline and the history and the way that you present it, Richard, it's just fascinating to get that backward view. Um, so thank you. And, and, and it's really interesting to, to to look at it in that long view. So so there's a deep seated policy failure here on the part of all governments to really face up to the consequences of what actually is a success story. The fact that we're all living longer and younger people with disabilities are living longer, too, so that, you know, councils now spend half of their budget on people under the age of 65. It's great news that we're living to the age where we're going to need, where most of us will need care and support. But successive governments have lamentably failed to think through the consequences of that for how we, not just how we pay for care, but how how we do it, how we organise it, and how we, you know, especially how we, how we fund it. And particularly disappointment, I think, that the Labour government between 97 and 2010, I think they should have achieved more. You know, they had a big majority in Parliament. They had they were pumping money into the NHS, and in fairness, they put a bit more into social care as well. Yeah, uh, they didn't have the distractions of Brexit or COVID, and I think they should have done a much more thorough job of social care reform. Instead, they left it too late. You know, there was there was they produced an interesting set of proposals towards the end about a national care service, but they lost the general election. Mm. And it's interesting to reflect back to twenty ten, isn't it? And it, yeah, around that time, and and the care act coming through, but everybody recognising that there wasn't the money and the the financials hadn't been sorted out. And the coalition got off to a good start. They they set up the Dilnot Commission. They accepted largely its recommendations. But the downside was that they implemented this period of austerity in which the NHS budget was largely protected, but local government wasn't, and social care spending got hammered, basically. And so we end up after after, you know, seventy-four years after the welfare state with two separate systems, health and social care, that are so different from each other. Uh, the NHS is universal despite its current problems. We all use it. It's free at the point of use. It's funded through general taxation. Social care, in contrast, is a mess. The funding is all over the place. And it's um, it's a service that is really only available to a small number of people that have very high needs and very low means. It's 
kind of you know it's rationing both in terms of people's needs and the services they get and it's limited to people that you know haven't got much money at all the threshold as you know is just over twenty three thousand pounds and it's disappointing that financial the funding reforms were postponed because that would have had a more generous means test um that would have helped people so i i just can't get over the fact that the cornerstone of our charging regime for social care is a means test still that was brought in in 1948 you know and that that national assistance act of 1948 that began with the words an act to eliminate the poor law mm-hmm. until we had the care act in 2015 that was the cornerstone of our adult social care law and the financial stuff, the means test, which is one of the yes. most draconian in the world outside America, is still there, unreformed. And that it, it is just beggar's belief that we can't even see through that most basic of reforms just to make the means test a bit more generous and help protect people who, you know, the one in seven of us that will leave, that will need care that will cost at least £100,000. And we've struggled, you know, to implement those most basic changes. The Conservatives sloughed it in 2015. They both postponed it and then abandoned it altogether. And they're the same as happened again in 2022. So it's kind of gone backwards, actually. You know, we've gone backwards in four years with that particular issue. And my argument has always been, you know, we should get those funding reforms do, done so we can move on to the really big issues about what is social care for? How should it be organised? What rights should people have? Mm. How should it be, be funded? Instead, when it does come out of the long grass, we're probably going to be talking about a cap on care costs all over again. So re- really, really frustrating, as you can probably <laughs> sense and that's one of the things you say in your book isn't it actually it, there's a call to arms around actually let's just try and move past this yeah um and and baby steps let's take baby steps and do something yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's right i mean in in my book i didn't didn't write too much about the the cap apart from the history of it because i genuinely thought that this time around it would go through and therefore, we could kind of move on to the the next thing, and and you know, little did I know what was going to happen. And coming towards the end, the publishers agreed to let me write a postscript, sort of capture the stuff that had happened under Liz Truss's premiership. But no sooner had I written that, and and the, the book was being printed, that it, it that became out of date because she she left office, you know. It's certainly been one of those years, yes. Yeah, the budget was unravelled. The the um, you know it's just astonishing times, really. Absolutely, and 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 it suppose that that kind of takes us on slightly to the if not now when question. Yeah, we for decades have made such limited progress when it comes to access to social care, and and we know that right now there are over half a million people waiting for an assessment. We know that Age UK are saying that shrinking council budgets have left 2.6 million people over the age of 50 in need of care. We know that working age people are having um, their care cut so that they're being left with the basics rather than being given social care that will help them to live a fulfilled and well-rounded life that 
they want to lead. And and I suppose then, what's your view? When is help coming? When do you think we we might see a national care service or 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 smaller changes that give us hope? So I I suspect that there is probably not a lot is going to happen now until we get a new government, and and we. Sh- I'd caution against making too many assumptions about that. Back in 2010, the election we had then, very, very few people saw the coalition coming. You know, they they, they, you know, they just didn't think that would mm. happen. So, so who knows what is going to happen? Um, I think Labour are doing some interesting work on a national care service. It's it's an interesting phrase. I've always been a little bit sceptical about it because what does it actually mean in practice? What's the national bit? Because the intention is to kind of make it the same everywhere. Well, that's really, really hard to do. I mean, we have a national health service yet. Yeah, it varies so much from one place to another. So I think it will be interesting to, to see what, what Labour come up with i mean i think initially it's the the fabian society has been commissioned to, to to produce some recommendations so i hope there'll be a really good debate about that there's there's some something similar going on in scotland because they want to bring in a national care service it's been quite controversial but i think it's really important there are ideas on the table in the debate whether or not we might agree with them personally but so so i i think we've probably got to wait for a new government i i think the current administration Frankly, I mean, they're beset by crises all over the place. I don't see social care policy getting much airtime amidst that, despite all that we know about its importance, the interdependency with healthcare and so on. And in the meantime, I, I think we, people who are arguing and campaigning for better social care, I think we've got to change our approach as well. I, I think there is simply no point just shouting at the government uh, to do something about an issue which it sees as really difficult, as as politically toxic, as something that could cost it votes at the next election. And I think we have to kind of flip that around and instead we have to work to build up public appreciation and support for the importance of social care in our everyday lives for all of us, you know, most of us will need it. And that it's that public support and appreciation that has powered political support for the NHS. You know, politicians are generally wary about messing too much with the NHS because they know that the public are deeply wedded to it. And we almost have to inculcate that public appreciation for social care alongside the NHS and really raise raise awareness so then it becomes easier for something for politicians for the governments of the day to take action which they think the public will support as opposed to giving them a good kicking for so i think that means reversing this top down policy making this this tired cycle of the government producing a green paper or a white paper or consultation or whatever and it's all kind of top down and we have to start, I think, bottom up. And I was researching my book. I was particularly taken with the work that's being done on deliberative democracy about involving citizens directly in some of the big issues the country faces, giving them information, giving them facts, giving them evidence and what the options might be. And really trying to sort of 
you know, shape up a series of bottom-up conversations that will create that public support, the social care. So that's that's my sort of that's where I am at the moment. And I mean, there's you know some good work going on. I mean, I think the social care future movement has done a great job of lifting our awareness of social care as a good thing, of something that's important for us to have a good life rather than a kind of a set of traditional services. And it's how we can build on and magnify that work to sort of create a really cast iron, compelling narrative that governments of the day will find it easier to kind of absorb and do something about. Some really important points there. Absolutely. Having voices from experts by experience um, sat around the table yep. is so important. And in fact, I was involved with a citizens assembly that was commissioned by the health and social care committee. Uh, um, so you're, you're talking about that, that deliberative democracy and yeah. it's really fascinating, isn't it? To look at what other jurisdictions are, are doing around using citizens assemblies. And I know that in Ireland, Part of the reason that um, progress was able to be made around abortion um, was that, that there was a citizens' assembly conducted um, to look at the issue. And yes, I mean it's just fascinating, isn't it, to think about some of the things that that might be be able to shift yeah. things forwards positively. But listen, Richard, I think I, I'd quite like to turn to your excellent new book now towards the um towards the start of the the book you, you give that important timeline on the policy work and the reviews and reports that have happened over the past two decades and then you turn to making some recommendations around some of the things that could help now i usually end our podcast by asking my guests to improve the state of our nation what one thing <laughs> would be the biggest game changer to the social care sector but given that you've been so courteous in coming along to to give us that review of the year and bearing in mind that your book addresses this very issue it seemed discourteous to only allow you one thing so richard i i'm going to to ask you um if you might outline for us three things that you think could help improve the state of our nation and be a real game changer for the social care sector? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think uh, I think a short-term thing that this government could do quite easily that would make a difference, I think, it's not going to change the world, but would make a difference, is that give an immediate bonus to care workers like the governments of the administrations in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And, you know, it wouldn't cost much. And I, I think in, in terms of just kind of helping to hold the situation, it would be something, and it would be a, a sign of appreciation and support. So that, that will be a little thing. But I, I think we need to think really big about this. And, and my, my, the three big ideas in my book were, first of all, we, first of all, we need a new social contract. We need a new understanding between citizens and government about who does what, both in terms of who provides care and who pays for it, and what's the role of government, what's the role of families and communities, what's the role of local authorities and providers. It's 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 all a, it's all a mush at the moment. We're still kind of hankering with that, that 1948 settlement and the assumption that unpaid carers do it. So I think we, we need a new social contract. Secondly, I think we need to make some big changes to the design of the social care system. And I've 
come to the conclusion after agonizing over this for, for some time, we've got to shift the balance of power towards individuals through self-directed support, but backed up by legally enforceable rights and access to good, comprehensive advice and information, similar to the work that you're you're doing, but something that's that's nationally funded and widely available to everybody. So people can not only have rights, but can enforce them. They'd be very happy for us to be nationally funded, Richard. Do continue. <laughs> yeah, um, it, I think it, it really needs that. I mean, the CARE Act is good on rights, but not so good on how people can enforce them and make them come real. And it's disingenuous in a way, isn't it? Because we've, you know, we, we've created all of these rights in the CARE Act, but the reality on the ground is just so different. And that idea of a social contract and really being transparent around what we believe as a society and how social care should be, social care needs should be met, I think is such an important point. But sorry, I interrupted you. Do give us your last, your last item. No, 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 no. That's uh, that's fine. No, I agree with that. And my third, my third action really would be would be a new funding settlement. And and in that order, we need to decide what we what we want from social care, what we want it to do, and a funding settlement that first and foremost places social care on a par with other key universal services that we all depend on to have a good life and a prosperous and fulfilled life, like healthcare, like education. Social care needs to be up there and it needs to be funded accordingly. If we were starting again with a blank sheet of paper, we wouldn't design a system with £160 billion NHS and a £24 billion social care system. It might be something the other way around, actually. We might be investing a lot more in services and support to enable people to live well in their own homes, to reduce their reliance on health and social care. So so there's um, some big, big issues there. But um, I think those three things, new social contract, completely redesigned system that favours the individual and choice of control, and thirdly and finally, a new funding settlement to pay for it. Let's hope all the right people are listening right now, Richard. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Not at all, Kerry. My pleasure. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and just brilliant to get your insight. And once again, just please read that book if you haven't. Um, a big, big shout out to, to make sure that they pick that up. Have a, have a great Christmas, Richard, and um, we'll look forward to seeing what you do next in 2023. Thank you and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you for listening in to this month's episode of The State of Our Nation. For more information, please go to www accesscharity.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at accesscharity1. At a time when the third sector continues to struggle in the face of economic uncertainty, your support has never meant more. That's why I would like to take this opportunity to let you know about our cost of living crisis campaign set up to help us provide free legal advice to people in England, ensuring they get the support they're entitled to. To make a pledge, please see the link to our Crowd Justice page in the bio. I hope you will all tune in next month to hear our next exciting panel of guests. <laughs>